Uh, we've we've been spending quite a bit of time in uh, the, uh, uh, talking about the Church of Ephesus. We started in Acts chapter 19 because, truthfully, that's where the Church of Ephesus begins. It starts in Acts chapter 19, and it tells the story of Paul coming to a city. He is not looking for the church of Ephesus. There is no church of Ephesus at this point. He actually goes in there and he finds, um, he finds a few believers. Now these believers hadn't even heard the fullness of the gospel. When he approaches them, he says, have you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you heard about the Holy Spirit? And they go, I don't know anything about this Holy Spirit. What we've heard of is John's baptism. We've heard that there's someone coming. We've heard that there's a person that is coming that's better than John. We've heard of John's gospel, what he preached. And so we've been baptized but for repentance, but we really hadn't seen or heard of Jesus yet. Well, he begins to share them the fullness of the gospel, and it says that the Holy Spirit came upon them and began to fill them up. And, and, and so that's how the whole church is birthed there in the church of Ephesus. We've kind of gone through the first three chapters here. We're starting chapter 4 in Ephesians. Chapter 4, we're just in the first like six verses is all we're going to hang in today a little bit. And uh, I'm going to talk to you about walking worthy. Walking worthy, as Paul begins to address what's actually happening in the, in the church of Ephesus. Give me a little bit more volume, just a little. So we're going to begin here. Let's just go ahead and, and read the, the word. I'm going to kind of jump around in translations. I kind of like what different one of them say, so I'm going to, I'm going to start with the, the New American Standard. Uh, this morning, in verse, uh, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord... Implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Now, we're going to start here. And I'm going to start with a story. I want, I want to tell you this story that I read. I've got a devotional book that was given to me uh, from another pastor here locally. And it's called The Indwelling Life of Christ by Major Ian Thomas. It's a pretty, it's a pretty neat little book. He, he's a military guy. I'm a military guy. So I, you kind of like, yeah, all right, let's, let's check this out. It's kind of a devotional. And one of the chapters, right in the middle, uh, um, I'm reading this story. And this has really got my mind thinking as I approach this. And so I, I want to share with you just a little bit about what the the book it said, it's a story of an alien race. He presents this idea of an alien race that is, uh, basically has heard on earth that you could see the face of God. That if you go to earth, they will see the face of God. And so they had heard, they'd really never, they'd, they'd only heard about God. They'd never, nobody had ever seen him. But it was said that you could see what he looked like because it was said, even written, that there were beings on earth that were created in his image. Now this is the story Ian Thomas is, is saying. So they descend from space on our planet, and they, they find themselves a vacant lot in the city. They, they put their spaceship down, and the first person they come across is a person that is uh, uh, basically is sprawled out on the curb. They kind of have to step over him to get, to get by him, and uh, he's a drunk. He's passed out. He's sleeping in his own vomit. Uh, but the aliens don't understand because they don't really know what alcohol is or anything like that, so they don't understand what is happening. They, just, they see this person. They don't know what's really going on, and, and they try talking to him, but the guy just kind of moans and, and rolls over. They, uh, they kind of leave him behind, and they turn to the corner, and they see a couple of young men threatening each other with knives, and they have like these drug-scarred arms and, and, and like this lifeless stare in their eyes, but the aliens don't know anything about drug abuse. They don't know anything about like all the, the sicknesses that people or men incur because of the things they do, and so they're kind of, kind of stunned at this point from what they see, and so they turn to enter into the door from where outside these guys are fighting, and it's, it's a bar. And they look around and they see the glaze of eyes that have had a little few too many, you know. And they see a TV blaring news in the corner. And the crowd is around the, the, new, the TV there. And they're listening to the news about like terrorist bombings and murders and stealing, corruption in business, corruption in government, uh, childish behaviors by celebrities. They're watching all of this. And it's eventually too much for them, right? They get back in their spaceship. They go back disappointed. They tell their homeland what God was like. For they had seen his image upon creation. Let that soak in. Their only idea of what God is like is what they see in us. So when they go back to the homeland, what is God like to them? Well, we saw God. What did he look like? He looked like a guy passed out like a bum sitting outside a bar. 
look like two guys fighting and hating each other. Look like a bunch of childish people who have like, you know, celebrity type people who just fight and bicker and just do all kinds of childish stuff. It looked like people glazed over from, uh, non, you know, drinking and smoking and everything else that they're doing. This is the painting that Major Ian Thomas paints. Did they see God? No. No, they didn't see God. What they saw was sin, plain and simple. Here's the problem with that, though. We're supposed to be the image of God. We were created to be the image of God. But oftentimes what people see is our sin. Oftentimes what they see is our sin. Now, in the text here, Paul exhorts the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Walk worthy. God has called you to be, created you to be, the image of Christ to humanity. So you're supposed to walk worthy of this. Now, I'm not saying you're going to feel worthy. It's got nothing to do with how you feel. I'm just telling you how we're supposed to be, what we're created to be. The old saying goes, and, and, I, and I love this, it says, if you can't see Jesus while you're living, there's a pretty good chance you won't see him when you die. Pretty good chance. We've been called and given a purpose to be Christ to this world, maybe the only Christ most people will ever see in here. Paul has spent the first three chapters trying to bring clarity to who we are, right? Who you are, right? His hope now, basically, is that you will understand this and are going to walk. Like, after you've read the first two or three chapters here, you're now going to have some understanding and begin to walk. In other words, live in this manner, right? I mean, the idea of what he's trying to explain is not foreign. It's not foreign, the sad part, it's not till like I think like chapter 10 in the book of Acts did we ever start to be called Christians. You know, for the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts, we're called the way. Because we're talked about more of it, what, what our reputation is, is not by who we associate ourselves to, but who, how we live our life. Literally, if you go back and read the book of Acts, the word Christian doesn't start until it reaches Antioch, about chapter 10, chapter 11, right in there. Up until then, it's called capital T, the capital W way. The movement of Jesus Christ was not called the Christian movement. It was called the way. The way because it was basically the way these people lived dictated whether they believed or not. You could physically see the change upon them. They were one way. Now we can see what Jesus has done. They are a different now. Something has happened in them. They've changed. I'm reminded of the words of John the Baptist. I used to say this to the youth all the time. Luke 3, 8. Tell him, man, I believe in grace. I believe in love. But if you know Jesus Christ, I, I would quote them, Luke uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 8. John would say this, prove by the way you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. Well, I'm a Christian. Prove it. Act like it. Let me see you talk like it. You should be acting like it. The irony of the gospel is this. We preach grace and love, which is so true. The gospel is this idea that Jesus loves you just like you are. He totally does. But make no mistake about this. This love is supposed to be so grand, so catalytic, that it causes a change within you. Whether you want it or not, you begin to change. And where there is no change, you start to wonder, is the person changed at all? Do they really love Jesus? The big deal is not whether you know Jesus. It's whether Jesus knows you. When he gets to heaven, it's a matter if he knows you, not whether you know him. Well, I know you. I've, lived, I've read about you my whole life. Good for you, man. I got no clue who you are. Anybody ever walk up to you and be like, I know who you are? You're like, uh, I don't know who you are. Everybody's had that moment, right? You're like Walmart. Like, I know I know them. They just said hi to me. But I don't know who it is. My wife's like, who is that? I'm like, I have no idea. I don't know. Yeah, but they act like they knew you. Like, I don't know how they knew me. I wonder if it's just going to be like that in heaven. You know? Jesus, you know, I don't know that girl. Hey, dude, he like knew a lot about you. In the irony of that, think about it. Think about what the scripture says. Many will call him Lord. Many will call him Lord, but few. Right? Few know him. Oh, there's a lot. Oh, they'll call him Lord, Lord, but they were far from him. They never knew him. Oh, they're going to call him name. Oh, I know Jesus. I know Jesus so good. Prove it. Let's see your repentance. Because Jesus requires repentance. Salvation requires repentance. Repentance means I've turned around. I'm living differently than I was before. Salvation requires it. There is no salvation without repentance. John says, prove by the way you live that you've repented 
and your sins and have turned. And this is basically what Paul is saying right here, that you've been saved by Christ, you've been purchased by Christ, and now you should identify with Christ in death and in life. Now go live it. That brother right there, that scared him right there. Go live it. Like John says, prove it. And, and I'm all about grace, and I, and I want to reveal to everyone on earth about the love of God, but to truly understand the gospel and the love of Christ it should be a catalyst. There should be a significant change when you meet Jesus, right? It's hard. I know, I know, I know. But we should see the difficulty of it also in your life. Like, man, I'm struggling, man. I'm done. But we should see the confession of that in your life. Like, dude, I'm trying. Like, I, I know that I shouldn't be doing these things because the more I draw close to Jesus, I can see Jesus doesn't doing these things. It's not a matter of whether I think you're guilty or I think they're bad or I think they're good. It's a matter of what, was, what I mean, we say it in cliche, what would Jesus do? But what would Jesus think about some of these things that we do? Is what you're doing qualified under two things? Are you loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And are you loving others more than yourself? Are you doing those two things? And if you're not, then there needs to be a challenge upon your life. It's hard. I should see the difficulty of repentance in your life. Man, it's hard. I had a lot of times, even early on in my life, where I'm smoking pot. It took me years and years. So I'd like, man, I'm done. A couple months go by, then you get around the wrong friend who's really good at peer pressure. You know, the kind of peer pressure that it's not really like peer pressure. You know, like he really didn't have to do anything. It was really just my weakness that kind of falls into it. And then I feel guilty, awful. I bring self-condemnation on me. By the way, Jesus never does any of that. Grace says God loves me just like I am, that God's working this thing out. And the irony I found with God, that God doesn't really so much worry half as much as people do. People will heap condemnation and judgment, and we're going to get into that, but uh, Jesus rarely ever does. But change is going to happen. You cannot hang around Jesus and stay the same. A saved life is a transformed life. Now, most people reject Christianity because they see people say certain things and then completely act different. Why is this so hypocritical? I mean, even uh, after all, isn't God offering us grace? Yeah. But the Bible is also clear that the gospel is transformational and is pointing us to become like Christ. Yeah, yeah, you're going to slip and fall, man. And people are going to see that and they're going to go, man, you say one thing, but you're doing another. Yeah, I know. Jesus loves me. That's the gospel. Why are so many hypocrites in church? Who else is going to love them? Y'all don't like them. How many of you are best friends with the biggest hypocrite in town? Right? None of you want to be. None of you would admit it. <laughs> Nobody wants to be. Jesus totally is. Isn't that funny? Like Jesus is like friends with some of the worst and most awful people. Paul killed people, by the way, and Paul was there when they were killing others. Jesus loved Paul. Loved him so much he knocked him right off his horse, made him blind for three days, made him go, had, had a simple guy, wasn't even a guy who was like really knowledgeable in the word or a, a noble or anything like that. This guy was just praying in his closet to come lay hands on him and be healed. You know how humbling that is for Paul? A guy who's esteemed a Pharisee amongst Pharisees. I mean, that's how it is. It's, God loves us. The Bible's clear about it. Transformational. He's pointing us to become like Christ. Even the lost understand that if you hang around Jesus, you, you should be becoming like Jesus. Because they're the first ones to look at you and go, well, you're such a hypocrite. Well, what do you know? You don't even believe in Jesus. What does it matter if I'm a hypocrite and you don't believe in Jesus? Technically, I'm not a hypocrite if you don't believe in Jesus. Why are you judging me? Think about that, how crazy that argument is. If a lost person who doesn't go to church, doesn't believe in Jesus, looks at me and calls me a hypocrite, what do you know? When was the last time you read your Bible and said that I was supposed to be this way? What do you know about Jesus? And if you do know about Jesus, then you are living contrary to the word then you do know the truth, and you do know the righteousness of God, and you do know these things. You know, that's the irony of the lost, is even they know that Jesus was a good person. Even they know that Jesus was righteous. So when you're not acting righteous, and when you're not acting like him, they know it, and they call you on it. Isn't that weird? It's funny how they have a heads up on stuff like that. So like anytime somebody tells me, like, well, man, there's just a lot of hypocrites. Like, how do you know? Like, you don't even hang out in a church. How do you know what's in the church? You know, and I always, you know, my, I say my pat answer all the time. Where else can hypocrites go and be loved, man? Man, I know some pretty bad people, but where else can they go? And Jesus loves those kind of people. So, like, where else can they go? If the church isn't full of sick people, I don't know what it's supposed to be full of. I mean, truly. So what, what should we be looking for, right? 
That's the question, is what are the traits we can be looking for? If we're to be the image of God, if we're to be the image of Christ, what should we be looking for? What is the very thing, right? Paul gives us a few identifying marks that should be on display in every believer. These four attributes, we said it in Ephesians right here in the verse six, six uh, verses there. Humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerance. And, and we're going to kind of take a quick look at these. If you're taking notes, we'll start with humility. It means to have a low view of one's own importance. If you think highly of yourself, you struggle with humility. <laughs> If you have some pride in you, you're struggling with humility. One of the biggest things that I get accused of, um, and I would say there's a struggle there always, um, because there's a, I have an air of confidence about me that always, I don't say it's mistaken because sometimes it is arrogance and cockiness and those things like that. I have an air about me of that because I tend to like, I'm very like proactive in everything I do. Just I'm going to attack whatever I'm going to do. I'm going to learn it. I'm going to get it done. I'm going to figure it out. And, and, I, and I'm not like super sympathetic as I should be to those who aren't like that, which causes me to be arrogant, which causes me to be prideful. Like, why can't, you know, like anybody ever heard that? Why can't they just figure it out? Man, because ain't nobody got it like you, bro. Ain't nobody just figured it out instantly, right? I mean, like that's what we have to kind of learn even about ourselves. Like there's sometimes I don't know and somebody else knows more than me. And then I have to sit and be humbled by that. Keep my mouth shut and just listen. And, and one of the great things I will say that God's done for me in my life, he's placed challenging people around me, like people who are like maybe even stronger leaders, maybe not better leaders, but definitely stronger in their approach and stronger in their attitude, that it causes me to just be quiet. And in those moments, I have to go, man, they really challenge the way I think. They challenge the way I believe. And I've had people in my life that like they're... they're they're gifting to believe by faith in like financial situations and things like that. I've, I mean, like I want to hang around them because I'm intimidated by their faith. I literally like I wish I had faith like this guy. And so I'll go hang around him and just keep my mouth shut because when I'm around him, I'm so humble because I have like no faith for what like the stuff that like this guy could do or something. And so I've had people in my life that caused me to be humble, right? Some of us think more highly than ourselves than we should. Biblical humility is basically the opposite of pride. It's the lowering of our self-view. This is extremely hard in today's society. We've built a huge business around the concept of self-exaltation. It's a giant business today. I mean, come on, man. We got a filter for everything on our phones to make you look good. We have figured out how to turn a camera, not just on the front, but on the back. So it looks right back at you. So you can have like 40 million pictures of yourself on your phone. Terrifying if I went through these teenagers' phones and saw how many selfies they take of themselves. It's crazy. It's crazy. Being in youth ministry is the ministry of self, like where you like really deal with that on a daily basis because youth, have a, they have a strong pull. Everything revolves around them and their life. And Facebook and Instagram and all these social media sites, they create a world that revolves around you and you alone. They're not necessarily bad, but they... Uh, but unchecked in your life, if you don't take these things and place them before the altar in everything you do, I'm going to tell you right now, it can easily lead you into a road where you are the center of your universe where, and you're sitting in the throne that Jesus should be sitting in. So easy. Today, I truly believe the greatest obstacle facing the church is self-centeredness. And with the help of technology, it's taken over our lives. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Watch. Keep watching. Philip. Philippians 2, 3 through 11, do nothing from rival, rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking, a part, taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Not even Jesus boasted and asked us to, to place him in a special position. Not even Jesus. Even though he was God in the flesh, rather he humbled himself and he became the lowest of the low to appeal to us and to our hearts. Jesus taught us in his life on earth that if we humble ourselves here, we will be exalted in him there. He lived a humble life and modeled it before us. 
modeled it before us. One of the things we did to combat this in youth ministry uh, years ago is we started a thing in September calling No Selfie September. No Selfie September. You weren't allowed to take a selfie for the entire month. No more taking pictures this month of yourself. Take pictures of others. Tell us a story about somebody else. Lift up somebody else. You ever practice that in your life? Think about it. If every day you decided you were going to make one person's day special every day, made sure you say hi, made sure you were going to talk nice to them, made sure that you were going to treat them a certain way. If every day you thought about someone else, I promise you, you'd never really fully understand how great, how great your life would feel because you place other people's first. If you were here last week, you already heard when we talked about the gift of suffering, how uh, uh, in that process that Paul's trying to teach us through the gift of suffering in Ephesians, what he's trying to tell them is when we put others first, we find a strength we'd never had. How do you think Jesus was able to withstand the whips? I don't know about you, but if you've ever seen the passion and when they take the whips and the bone and the metal and hit your back, I'm going to tell you right now, I mean, I would love to think as a Marine, I'm like the strongest guy around and stuff, but you hit me one time, I might be confessing. You start ripping some flesh off my back. I can, I can handle the make fun of part. You start ripping flesh and bone off me. That's a whole different, that's a whole different thing altogether. How does Jesus do it? Because it's not about himself. Thinking about you, he rose above his own needs and his own desires and his own wants, and he completed that which he set out to complete. If you're going to complete the very things God has called you to and walk worthy in the manner God's called you to, the only way to do that is to start thinking about others and less of yourself. That's the only place you're going to find the strength, right? Parents, you should know what I'm talking about because if you sacrifice your kid, you already got an idea. You know, you, you do things, you're like, I'm going to set aside, instead of getting this, I'm going to spend this money because I know it needs to go to my kid here. I know my kid needs some things, so instead of getting things for, I mean, you know, like, you, you know how it is, that transition from uh, I'm in high school where I want to wear nice stuff, I'm going to wear nice things, but I got a kid now, uh, I'm full, I'm going to be at Walmart, man, and then my kid's going to dress in nice. That's how it is. Why does that happen? Uh, because our kids become like the most important things in our life, man. Because when we live for others, we find a strength. You ever hear that when they like mama bear strength, you know, like when they talk about the woman who could like pick up a car on if it was on her kids, like, ah, throw that thing around like she's strong as that. Where does that come from? Because she's getting the strength because it's not about her. It's about her kid, man. It's about someone else. We find strength when we quit thinking about our own self and we press it into others, right? It causes us to be humble when we do that. Let's talk about the next one, gentleness. A better translation for this word would be meekness. When he's talking right here, to be meek is to be submissive. Now, submissive to what? That's the question, right? Pretty simple, submissive to Christ. What does Christ want? What does Christ say? To be meek is to be humbly obedient before the Lord. Now, let me, let me, make, let me be clear right here. Meekness is not to be confused with weakness here. All right? Let me, let, me, let me share with you something. I, I did a study on the word uh, uh, through a, a, a Greek uh, a, a, you know, New Testament dictionary. The Greek word here used to describe gentleness or meekness is the word prautes, P-R-A-U-T-E-S, prautes. Now, prautes, according to Aristotle, who spoke in this language, when he's describing what these words meant, he said this, prautes is the middle standing between two extremes. Getting angry without reason and not getting angry at all. Therefore, Proutus is getting angry at the right time, in the right measure, and for the right reason. It is a condition of mind and heart which demonstrates gentleness. Not in weakness, but in power. It's awesome. It is a balance born in strength of character. Man. Changes the way we look at the word gentleness, meekness. means we have this balance in it. It's like we, we know what to be angry about, and yet we have the control to balance that out. We have the control to balance when and what to be angry about. So just because we, we become submissive out of our own choosing. We choose to, because we know what's right and we know what's wrong, so we choose, and it's this middle ground that's happening. Are we balanced about our approach to the things of God and man? Are we able to submit to God in grace and grow in wisdom? Being balanced about our walk with Him. Understanding who we are in relation to what He's done. Do we understand these things? Don't underestimate the, the act of meekness. For Christ was explicit when He declared in Matthew 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they're the ones who inherit the earth. You think the weak are going to inherit the earth? The strong are. God here calls them meek. 
It is the meek that we see Jesus delighting to share his inheritance with. Are you meek? Are you gentle in spirit? Do you have this ability within you to measure the right, to know when to be angry, to know when not, to know when to be submissive? Do you have that ability to be meek, to be, to be teachable, to be, to be malleable so God can use you and, and grow you? Do you have that ability? Next one is patience. This one should be a little bit more easy to understand, and yet it's one of our greatest failures, right? Patience, as it's being described here, is more than just waiting for something. It portrays the thought of enduring suffering or being slow to anger and even in retaliation of someone treating you or committing wrong against you. Now, I love my favorite, my favorite translation of this is the King James Version. By the way, if you don't ever read the King James Version, you're missing out on a good translation. The King James Version, I know we've kind of like moved on to a day and generation where we're like NIV, NLT, and all these other things, which are great, by the way. I, I read out of them all. But man, there's nothing like the King James when it comes to words because we have simplified our vocabulary so much since then that it just doesn't convey all the greatness that words can be. So patience in the King James is called long-suffering. Who would agree with that translation? If you've ever had to be patient about something, you know that it felt like you've been suffering for a long time, right? It could have been like five minutes, man. And, and like that, we man, long-suffering, such a wonderful word there. Simply put, it's the act of living and walking in grace, much like how God is patient with humanity, right? God walks every day patient with you. How many times do you mess up and God still says, I love you? That's some patience. Some of you are questioning like every day you find out how much you love your kid because of how much patience you need to endure that your kid, right? Like, I, man, so far it was a good day. I hadn't popped him in the back of the head once, right? It's a good day. I love him. Yes. Good day. Psalm 37, 7 through 9 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For if the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. <clears throat> Patience. He starts out two simple words, really easy. Be still. By the way, in this, in this psalm right here, be still is a call to humble yourself. Be still for a minute. You can't do everything. So be still for a second. Quit trying to do everything. There, like, I know some of us, that's like one of our, it's one of our greatest gifting is being able to be a problem solver, but it's also for us leaders as well. It can be a mighty humbling experience for us to have to be still and know we can't solve the problem. Be still is a call to humble yourself. You can't do everything. As a matter of fact, be still is your recognition that God is your only hope. That's the only... How many of you have been across something where God is the only way? Like if this is going to happen, it's going to take God and God alone. Because there ain't no other way it's going to happen. Like it, it's God, you're going to have to do it because there is no other way. By the way, he loves those moments. God is the best underdog. He always delivers. He's always the underdog, by the way. The world is always trying to look like it's the giant. And God is happy to look like the David. He's happy to look like that. By the way, it's why he tells stories like David. It's always why the Jews are few and Egypt is so many. It's always the underdog. You ever notice that about God? God is always the underdog. And yet he can win. we know how powerful he is. We see him. Man, that guy split rivers. He brings fire from heaven. I mean, he does all kinds of stuff. And yet God is always the underdog of the Bible. Always. We are to be still. Recognize that God is the only, he's our only hope. Next, the psalmist says, refrain from anger. In other words, be meek. Be meek. <laughs> Find the balance in your anger that brings grace and wisdom to the forefront of your heart. Like being angry is not bad. How you act, is how you act and how you behave on that anger, that's a totally different thing altogether. Are you submissive to the Lord in that moment? Like when you're angry and you really want to do something, are you submissive to the Lord? Are you, do you go and reach out to him or do you act compulsively upon your anger? Be meek, be meek. The psalmist and Jesus both confirmed that patience or waiting on the Lord leads to a great reward. Come on, how many times have we completely, completely missed what God is doing just because we couldn't be still? Or we let anger get the best of us and we totally like ruined a situation that could have been different. Now, you can't know these things, but come on, those, those thoughts exist in the back of our heads. I mean, if I'd have just said this, I wish I'd have just, by the way, as a preacher, I'm going to tell you, there's more than once that I've, ever, that I've always said, as somebody who speaks a lot and talks a lot, 
that I said, man, I wish I had shut up. That's what my wife's for, by the way. My wife is the first person to go. She'll tag me on the back. Or the times where you don't see, like we're at the table, and she'll, and she'll like just kick me in the leg. And that's supposed to mean time to shut up. Jim, quit talking. Let them talk. Say something. Or you're saying too much. Shut it up. Shut it up. Right? God sent me my wife because sometimes I don't have all those things firing off for me, man. Praise God, right? Praise God for people in our lives to hold us accountable to the things we say that help us be more like the image of God. Iron sharpens iron. Iron sharpens iron. <clears throat> Lastly, tolerance. Now, tolerance is found on the lips of our psalmist when he used the word refrain. When he used the word refrain, but even that word isn't really big enough to describe the depth of this word for the believer who identifies themselves in Christ. Man, we're going to have to pray. In the commentaries published by Francis, uh, folks, on Ephesians, got a big book that's just all about Ephesians. He says, he referred to this idea of tolerance as this, the practical outworking, the outworking of patience. It involves bearing with one another's weaknesses, not ceasing to love one's neighbors or friends because of those faults in them which perhaps offended or displeased us. Let me read that again because it's really good. The practical outworking of patience, it involves being, bearing with one another's weaknesses, not ceasing to love one's neighbors or friends because of those faults in them which perhaps offends and displeases us. You ever had somebody just offends and displeases you? Yeah, welcome to this one. This one's a hard one, right? Like, like, like somebody like says something all the time, like I think they just like say that just to get at me. Man, love them. Realize that they're just lost, man. We're all mean. You can be mean. I'm telling you, you can get mean just like that. If you think you're better than somebody else who offends you and is mean to you every day, you might be that person for somebody else. You don't even know. You don't even know. It's hard. It's hard to love someone when there are things that we tangibly and visibly see. It might even be visibly evident to everyone else that are causing issues amongst the body. But it's hard. In that moment, God's saying, I need you to tolerate some things. You don't think Jesus was upset with everything he saw with the Pharisees? The irony is that he only got mad really once that we saw and like, you know, took off to whipping everybody out of the temple. Because, man, how many times are they always trying to snare him at words? What about taxes? What about money? And they're always like all over him. And after a while, you, I mean, like, by the way, he does talk more about Pharisees than, than, uh, than, than his fair share there. But his tolerance to try to love them and try to teach to them and try to explain to them. When, he, when honestly, he knows, and by the way, which he states, with ears you do not hear and eyes you do not see. And yet it still doesn't stop him from trying to teach them. Like just because we think someone's so hard-hearted they might never learn or listen doesn't mean that we stop loving them. Doesn't mean we stop showing grace or passion or hope to them. Right? I mean, most of the time it's, it's here where we become the most judgmental and often cruel. Loving others means that even though we might see where they are, are weak, doesn't mean that we criticize them or try to or go out of our way to say things that might offend them. Yeah, there's a time to hold somebody accountable. There's a time when somebody's a Christian, they're saying, man, they've got the saved walk, they have, they have repented, you've seen their life turn. But, you know, most of the people that have accountability in, in someone's life, it's usually because there's a love or, or a connection between the two, a friendship that allows somebody to go, hey, I see these things in your life, man. And I'm not saying it to judge you, I'm saying it because I love you. And, man, I want to help you if, if you want somebody to talk to, walk with you through this process, we can walk through this process together. That's accountability. The, the other one, the one that's not tolerant, is the one that like talks to somebody else. Have you seen how horrible this person is? Like they come every week and they act like this and they do like this and blah, 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 blah. Well, that sounds really tolerant. Sounds so loving. I can't believe they ever come back. I mean, that's, this is where love and grace has come. And tolerance is not just like, uh, well, I'm going to tolerate you. It doesn't mean i got to like you. That's not love. That's not what we're talking about here. All right? We're talking about loving others more than ourselves, loving someone, spiritually loving someone. There is a time to hold someone accountable, and there's a time to give someone space. I beg you to search out the spiritual maturity to know between the two. Many a person has been pushed away from the church because of legalistic, spiritually immature Christianity. What do I mean by that? I mean that most people come, and because they have a legalistic view of God, they think that they're good because they've done something. Listen, some of you are going to be more mature than others, which means that you act in a way that's more like Christ. 
which is a good thing. That does not make you saved. Because there are also people in the church that are just as good at you at doing good things. They come just as much to church as you do. They, they, they're here every time the door opens. They pray at the prayer meetings. They come every, they do all these things. And I'm telling you, man, they don't know Jesus. Well, how can you tell? Listen, man, eventually what, everything in the heart comes out the mouth, and you'll eventually see it. Because how they treat others. When you hear them being judgmental of others, why don't they come? You know, we come every time the door. Listen, first of all, if you already started comparing, you're missing the point. If you already started comparing your life, well, I come to church all the time. Well, I go to church. Don't they see me go to church? I'm going to tell you, that don't mean nothing, man. I don't mean nothing. I don't care if this church is empty or it's full. I don't care. That doesn't mean you're saved. Saved is about, have you repented? Do you know Jesus? And when you met Jesus, it caused a catalyst in your life that you no longer walk like this. You walk a different way. I don't care where you end up worshiping alongside other believers, which is, by the way, what church is. All right? What I care about is, do you know Jesus? Is the salvation gospel in you? And if it is, then I should see you start to walk in a way that's worthy of him. That doesn't mean if you're struggling to walk in the way that all of a sudden you're unsaved. And it doesn't mean that you're not as smart or good as anyone else. It doesn't mean any of that. We walk as fat. Listen, Jesus leaves no person behind. By the way, he says that anybody that's in my hand cannot be plucked out. I mean, he gives us an assurance in salvation that, by the way, that's biblical, an assurance in salvation that when we repent, and we give our lives to him and we seek to go after him and we seek to change and we seek to repent and live a life walking worthy in the manner of the Lord that God will finish the very thing he started in us. That's biblical. So the, the, here's where we got to get everybody. The spiritual maturity of tolerance is this, that we will love one another in that process. We won't judge them because they may, well, they're not where I'm at. Well, bro, you've had 15 years to get there and people in your life to call you out when you did wrong. You had a lot of preaching to sit under, a lot of worship music to listen to, a lot of walking with people who are walking after the Lord. Give patience to those who haven't. Be tolerant of them. You see where I'm going with this? If you're humble, by the way, some of this other stuff's going to come easy. Isn't it funny how he started there? If you have an ounce of humility in you, I won't have to worry so much about if you're tolerant or if you have patience. Because in humility, you realize that you needed patience at one time, so you give patience. In humility, you'll understand that you needed people to tolerate how your behavior was for a season. So you give tolerance to others who not need it for a season. It's funny how it starts there, right? Loving others more than ourselves is what we see Christ practice. This is the image of Christ. This is the very same image that we should see projected in us. That way, when the world sees us, Marble Falls sees us, your families that doesn't go to church or not saved or know Jesus sees us, they go, hey, why are you like that? I mean, I'll never forget one of the best things I've heard my brother say, my youngest brother, as he was possibly going through his second divorce, man, he says, dude, Jim, I just want what you got. I'm like, the guy makes like three times more than me. So, so stupid smart. You know, traveled the country in the Air Force. Just, just unbelievable. Good guy. But do, didn't know Jesus. And I led him to the Lord that night in the car. Now, is it for me to like, we said a prayer. Does that mean he's saved? No. What happens next for him is, will he walk worthy in a manner that projects the image of Christ to everyone else? Will he follow now after Christ and the catalyst of his life? I can't control that part. What I can do is point him in the right direction. I can't make people know Jesus. Neither can you. Evangelism is not about winning souls. You don't win nothing. By the way, if you win them, that means you lose them. Don't take that means all the loss of years. So when, like church, we have a tendency in church to go, look at all these wins we got this year. Well, I'm going to tell you, as soon as you start doing that, make sure you also claim all the losses. Every time your church was uh, uh, spiritually immature and they did things and said things about others and gossip and all these other things that comes with the messiness of humanity, right? That's all on you too then. If you want all the good, you get all the good and the bad. There's no just like one side of that deal. All the bad stuff, well, that's, God, that's just the will of God. You know, it's not. Take it all. You, listen, it's either all God or it's all you, one or the other, right? Salvation is all God. There is no me laying hands on someone. I can say a prayer with you. We can come up and we'll, we'll go through that kind of semantic, so to speak. But the truth be told is repentance creates discipleship. And, and how can I know what your heart says? I hear what your mouth says and your confession before everyone else when you repent. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's about John going, prove it. Prove it. 
Like, I get that it's not easy. And you know what? As a spiritually, uh, um, let's see, trying to be a spiritual mature Christian, I'm going to be humble in my walk, and I'm not going to judge you in yours. So I've heard you say it, and I'm going to give you space now to live it without judgment, without condemnation, because does Jesus judge you, and does Jesus give you condemnation? No. When you stand before him at the end of your life, you'll face that judgment then. And if you know Jesus, no judgment awaits for you. Righteousness awaits for you. And if you don't know Jesus, let me tell you something. You've been living in judgment this whole time then. Listen, we're all born going to hell. Jesus has intervened to rescue us. That's the gospel. We're all born there. Jesus doesn't have to send anybody down. You're all headed there. But if you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved, he says. So you have this opportunity to come just like you are, receive the gospel, and start to walk in a way that's worthy of Christ. And why? It's because you know. You know the depth and the level of God's rescue. You know, I love it. I love it. Uh, Jesus tried to explain it like this. He said, he said, uh, uh, two people owe money to a, like, uh, uh, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, like a loan shark, kind of like a manager type guy. He says, they, one owes 5,000, one owes, or one owes like 1,000, uh, one owes like 10,000. And he says, which, uh, uh, the, the guy looks at both of them and says, I forgive these debts. He says, which one do you think is more thankful? The guy with the 10,000 is what everybody says, right? And he goes, right. But here's the truth of that, that whole thing, right? If, you, if you're $1,000 in debt, you're, he's going to kill you. If you're $10,000 in debt, what more can he do to you? He's going to kill you. So what, is it, what does the debt matter? You both have the equal punishment. You get what I'm saying? And so the gospel is when we realize that, hey, I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, but I'm going to tell you, bro, even if you just are down 50 cents in that debt, you're, you're dead. Like, he's gonna, you're going to die. That, it doesn't matter. Any debt is death. So it doesn't matter if someone owes 10000 or someone owns 1000 or a dollar or 50 cents or a penny. It's the same rescue. You have been pulled away. God has forgiven your debt. So, so some people, they don't get that though, right? Because they're like, man, it, it wasn't like, I mean, I could reach the top. I just couldn't pull myself out. And then you got the guy who's like, boy, I reached the top. I, couldn't even, I didn't even know there was sunlight. It was so far down in that thing. And so that guy's like, man, I'm totally, I love Jesus. That's the like Pentecostal, like radical type like me. Like they'd be like, I just love Jesus, man. Don't you just love Jesus? I want to talk about Jesus every day of my life. Why? Because that man, that guy rescued me. I couldn't even see up. It was so dark. It was nothing but dark and everything. There was no light. There was nothing around. I couldn't say, oh my gosh, let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus is so great. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then you got the guys like, man, I love Jesus. And that's about the most you're going to hear about it. <laughs> and so the way, I've, the way I've always looked at it is you apparently have a different idea of like your rescue, like how deep you were in. By the way, if you don't realize, like you, like you were a way better person than me. But at the end of the day, let's just be honest, you were going straight to hell too. At the end of the day, that's just the truth. And so we struggle, man, to see our rescue. We struggle to see that. And because we struggle to see that, we act differently. So we struggle in humility. We struggle in tolerance. We struggle with meekness. We struggle with gentleness. We struggle with patience. Why? Because we have this skewed view that somehow we were better than some others or something. That's what causes us to be judgmental in our walk. Man, I'm walking so good now. Look how Christian I am. I'm so above the hole. Bro, you'd still be in the hole, man. Jesus is the only reason you're out. You didn't do anything. Do you realize that not even your changing, your walking worthy comes from the strength that Christ gives you? That you would still be a slave to sin, walking in your sin had God not pulled you out so that you could walk in a way that's new. So that all of the goodness that happens to you outside of salvation becomes all God's glory too and you get none of the credit. By the way, when they show that film, I always like to say, you know, uh, back in the 90s, there used to be this big fear, man, one day they're going to show you a, a movie screen in heaven. And boy, in heaven, they're going to, in this movie screen, it's going to be everything of your life played out before you. And boy, when you're going to be embarrassed of some of the things that they're going to see there, I'm going to tell you what they're going to see. If you're saved and know Jesus Christ, it's going to be a blood red screen because it says everything he's forgiven, he's also forgotten. Hard to replay your life if he can't remember it. I used to do that to try to scare you, mess the whole gospel up, try to like scare you into being saved. That doesn't work. By the way, it's already scary. Being in a hole is already scary. Being in a place where you know that somehow deep in you're depraved. And how do I know that? Because the majority of people know what Jesus is supposed to be. I remember that's the whole hypocrite talk we just had. Most people know where they should be. Most people know when they're doing right and wrong. 
Why? Where, why? How do they know that? Because inherently in you, you were created in the image of God. You're created. So this whole excuse, well, they never knew. There's no person on the face of the planet, man, that wasn't created in the image of God. There's something in them that draws them to the righteousness of God. There's something in them that draws them. And they don't, so they fill it with all these other things. And they, they throw all this other stuff and they struggle with everything else. Paul's trying to tell you through all this, man, through the Ephesians. Listen, he's, he's just like going through them, man. Picking apart. Listen, you should be united in Christ. Be in Christ. Be in Christ. Be in Christ. Look like Christ. See how Christ suffered. See it. In his suffering, you have become like this. And now through chapter 4, man, he says, now, these, now walk worthy. Right? You get it now, so walk worthy. Walk worthy as you're united with Christ, right? Like John says, prove it now. Prove it. Just walk in a way that Christ would walk. How do I do that? Start by reading your Bible. See how Christ walked. He loved everybody, man. He gave to everybody. He literally had nothing. I mean, the funny thing, I've heard preachers like, you know, harp on this, man. We wear $1,000 suits today on behalf of the person who wore a peasant's robe. We plead and beg for the money for a guy who had to borrow money just for a sermon illustration. <laughs> I mean, he spent his money on everybody else. He, he lived for everyone else. And he teaches us to do the same. He teaches us to do the same. Let's all reel this in with this. Humility, meekness, patience, and tolerance. Are you walking worthy? Are you walking in a manner worthy of your calling? I mean, come on. If aliens were to come down and they were able to see who has called you, and, uh, or would they be able to see who's called you? Would they be able to see the created image of God in you, where you belong? Are you, are you struggling with some of these attributes? Which we probably all are, right? Because the answer is yes, we are. Of course you are. Me too. Totally am. And, and, and this isn't like a we're all alone kind of thing and we're all struggling. No, man, this is a we're all in this together thing. We all endure this together. We all go through this together. We all fight, struggle together. That's how we survive this thing. That's why he called it the church. That's why he called it a body, right? Somebody's got to be the finger. Somebody's the hands. Somebody's the arms, elbows, everything else, right? It's a together thing. We get through this thing together. Christians find each other. Why? Because the one thing that threads them together is Jesus Christ. He's the blood that creates the body. Man, he is the blood flow of us. He's the blood flow. He's what brings us life. He's what reminds us to walk worthy because we're not walking in our own blood flow anymore. We're walking in the blood of Jesus. Right? It's fueling us. It's pushing us. It's giving us passion. Right? It's drawing us closer to him. And as we draw closer to him, we start to love other people because that's what he loves. Right? He doesn't think about himself. God's not selfish. That's us. God has poured out the heavens upon us. God said in, in the middle of the Trinity, in the middle of the Trinity, God established that we would be there right there so that when we go to heaven today, think about what we're going to see when we see the right hand of the Father, right? We see Jesus. We're going to see flesh and blood sitting up on the throne because God wanted to somehow connect with us in such a way. So he made Christ into a man, put him up back on the throne so that when we would see him, we would not feel like we were like, uh, uh, like lost or like something different from him. Think about that, right? God somehow lowered himself to look like one of us so that we would feel comfortable about walking into the house of God. Think about how, I mean, like in, in, if you ever read any of the Old Testament stuff, uh, Old Testament, this is Apocrypha stuff. This is, this is stuff that the Catholics kind of read, but they don't include, so I wouldn't call this biblical stuff. But there's a, there's a portion of it that is from the, the book of Enoch that talks about if any of this is true, right? Like I'm not going to say this is fact, but he paints a picture of seeing God upon the throne, and it's white and heavenly, and as he approaches God, he begins to cripple up, and it's frightening and yet awe-inspiring at the same time. But now look at God who now through New Testament has Jesus Christ sitting upon the throne. And when we go before him, we won't see this something that looks so uh, uh, spiritually, uh, maybe more like alienistic to us or what we can imagine, right? It'll be flesh and blood, Jesus. There'll be a Jew sitting right up on the throne, man. Bearded and long-haired and all. Right? And we're going to look at this guy and we're going to see, man, he's one of us. In heaven sits somebody who looks like one of us, man. God loved us so much, man. And he, wanted to, he wanted us to connect so much that he made himself to appear as one of us. He came down. He endured what we endured. He saw what we saw, man. He spoke with the same tongue and the way we speak, man, so that when we see him and we approach him before the throne, we'll feel comfortable. Man, I've known, I'm telling you, I think when we get to heaven, at least for me, about talking to Jesus, talking to Jesus and talking about Jesus so much, I picture that when I get to him and it's going to be so comfortable. 
Because I'm going to walk up to him like, man, I've known you my whole life. Excuse me. It's going to be like that. Like, I've known you my whole life, man. I've known you my whole life, man. I've been talking about you. I've been talking to you. We've, we've conversated so much. So many times have you told me revelational stuff, you know. Uh, I was asked the other day about like some fundraising stuff I did with the youth, and I was having to tell the story about how God spoke to me numbers, and in these numbers that we were going to raise, and God answered. God, God just says, do this, and I go, do this, and, and it just works because God said, do it. And So that when I approached him one day, I'll, man, I, I've heard your voice for as long as I can remember. I'm no, there's no strangers here. I've listened to you for, all my, for, for the majority of my life, God. And, man, I, I think when we step in, man, when we see Jesus in the flesh, in the flesh. Did you hear what I just said? God, almighty, creator of heaven and earth, sitting in the flesh so that I could relate to him. So that I could somehow see that there's, it's, there's, this, there's this piece of us that looks at God and sees this almighty thing that we're never going to understand and we're never going to get and we're never going to somehow comprehend. Man, he's mighty and he's in the air and we can't really see him and we can't. Oh man, are you kidding me? You're going to go to heaven. You're going to touch his tangible hands, man. You're going to be able to touch his face. You're going to be able to see him in physical form, and he's going to look just like you. Weird-looking nose, strange eyes, probably got the braids right there like the rest of the Jews because maybe he likes braids. I don't know. Awesome man beard, right? Be something comfortable to that, won't there be? Maybe not as fearful as we like to think heaven can be. I love how they always try to paint heaven so scary. You tell me, you look at the face of Jesus in the New Testament. Tell me what's scary. You know what I think is scary to all of you? His love. Because you know, man, every time we look at his love, how in debt we feel. He died for everybody. And if that didn't make you feel humble, if that doesn't cause you to desire meekness or tolerance or patience, I don't know what does. Amen? Stand to your feet. Let's get it ready to do some little bit of worship. And as we get ready to sing some of these songs, I, I want you to think about Jesus like that. God is good. thankful, God, for you. So thankful, Lord. Father, I pray you just continue to stir our hearts, God. May we see you in new lights and in new ways, God. May we grow in you and become spiritually mature, God. Hands held high, we 